This is Blue Collar Culture, where you don't need ping pong tables, a cereal bar, or nap pots to attract and retain real A players. Join us where we speak with down-to-earth leaders that understand what it takes to win with a blue collar culture. Now here are your hosts, Jeremy McLiver and Ryan England. Innovation is a key step in being able to transform the way you attract, hire, and retain amazing people. If your company isn't innovating in the way it's recruiting, if you're not innovating in the way you're engaging your people, heck, if you're not innovating in the way you just market and present yourself in the marketplace, you're missing out. And so often companies get stuck and they got their blinders on and they are looking at the things they used to do or the things that others are doing in their industry as inspiration for innovation. And today's guests will actually tell you that's not the way we should be doing it. Carla Johnson is an expert at helping organizations innovate using her five-step process. She's going to explain the process to you and help you understand how you can take this and create an amazing team of people that are constantly innovating in your side of your business and out so that you can transform your business and get the results you've always wanted. Hi, Carla, and welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me today. I'm looking forward to today's conversation because there is something that just is intriguing me about your expertise in innovation. I can't wait to hear more. So tell me, what is the biggest myth you run into in the work that you do? I would say the biggest myth that I run into is that innovation is something that only a specific group of people is allowed to do. And we see them as the product development people. Maybe it's process design people. If you're thinking about construction, it could be the software people that there is a certain person or type of person or role, educational background who somehow we have given them the official tap on the shoulder that they are the innovators. And it's really the most successful organizations don't buy into that. I love that. Well, hey, do this real quick for me. I should have asked you to start with this. Define innovation. What is that definition that you use for that term? I love that you asked that because if I asked 20 different people for a definition of innovation, I would probably have 35 or 40 answers. It's really funny because it's not like accounting. It's not like architecture. It's not like or construction. There isn't a specific definition and necessarily methodology that's widely accepted as to what it is. I define innovation as the ability to consistently, and that word is very important, come up with new, great, and reliable ideas. Now, it sounds super simple, but each word has a powerful impact. A new idea is something that hasn't been done before in your industry. So for example, I like to use McDonald's as an example of a new idea. When they were looking at how to design or redesign their drive-through layout for the restaurants, they took inspiration from a Formula One pit stop because they looked at who has to have a car come in and out very fast, efficient, safe, and all of the same requirements as what McDonald's used. Now, was it an idea that had never, ever been done before? No. But was it a new idea that had its first time in the fast food industry? Yeah. So that's the definition of a new idea. But a new idea on its own doesn't necessarily mean it's successful or provocative enough to be considered innovative. So the next criteria is that the idea is great. 
Now, to be honest, Ryan, a great idea is a lot more subjective than a new idea because a great idea is one of those things that when you hear it, it kind of raises the hair on the back of your neck or on your arm or gives you a little bit of goosebumps. And it makes you feel a little jealous that maybe you didn't come up with that idea. But even with that impact, when you think about a new and a great idea, we see some of those, but they crash and burn or the company that has them goes out of business. And that's why the third requirement is so important also. And that's a, it's a reliable idea. And a reliable idea is something that has a bottom line financial impact. When you put all three of these together, then innovation is when you're able to consistently come up with new, great, and reliable ideas. So ideas that are new to your industry really give you that sense of envy and excitement, but also have a bottom line financial impact. And so when companies or people are able to consistently develop these over long periods of time, that's truly the people in the organizations that we look to and say, man, they are just rock star innovators. I love that qualification you gave for that reliably because I work with a lot of visionaries, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of people that they have a hundred ideas by the time they are done with breakfast and they walk into their team meeting and they tell them like, I got all these great ideas and the people just start shooting them down and they might be new and they might be great, but if they don't impact that bottom line, they're not ideas that we really need to be using and moving forward. I just like the way you qualified that. I'm going to share this episode absolutely, with some people. Absolutely. Because- you know, and it's, and it's also along the way, it's not necessarily always up front, but you have to have an objective for your ideas. There are those times when you want those brilliant breakfast ideas, but at the end of the day, they have to apply and have impact for them to truly be innovative. But I think what people don't always realize is that there is also a gift in the person who can come up with a lot of ideas. Because one thing that I see is people will come up with six to eight, maybe 10 ideas and go, man, that was awesome. And they pick the best and run with it or try to run with it. But research shows you don't truly get to really creative and really innovative ideas until you've gone through the first 200. So you think about those meetings where you get through the first eight or 10, that's just the low hanging fruit. And to be honest, in most cases, you're probably just taking something that you've done in the past. You're rehashing it a little bit, a little take a part out, substitute something in and saying, oh man, that's an awesome idea. And it misses that great component. And then if you think about, okay, you go one step further, maybe you've taken something that a competitor does and put your own flavor on it, but still not really competitive to really stand out. The idea generation step has to be fueled by inspiration outside of your industry. But that's a little bit of a benchmark, not that every team or person gets to that 200 idea mark before they choose one, but it just gives us a sense of context for how quickly we default to what's easy rather than what's truly new, great, and reliable for an idea. I see that happen a lot. People get excited about ideas and they just run with it. And then three months later, they're like, we're losing money. This is dumb. Why are we doing this? It was like, it sounded so good three months ago. And exactly. it wasn't a good idea. It wasn't a good idea. Uh, yeah, that's great. And let me ask you, so the myth was that there's not a select few that can consistently do this. But then I hear the 200 ideas before you get to the point where you're starting to be more innovative. This seems kind of contradictory to me. Like you either have to be the idea generation person or not. And help me break that down a little bit. I'm sure I misheard something. So break that down for me. Actually, I should have put your first question into answer A and answer B. 
So the first myth is that there are people who are the special ones, as we think of them, who are the idea people. And I think the second myth subset, item 1A, is that it's just this ambiguous process and ideas just pop into your head where you're running, showering, that they just magically appear. But the truth is coming up with great ideas is actually a structured process. I spent five years doing research, studying all sorts of innovators in all sorts of industries, sizes of companies, ages, geographic regions around the world. And I looked at their individual competence, team competence, company competence, and coming up with ideas. And what I found is that they all followed the same five-step process, whether they realized it or not. And the interesting thing is the most powerful part of it is that the innovators that we think have this magical ability understand that you have to fuel up front the idea generation process. And you do that by being more observant of the world around you. That's the first step of this process is that really highly innovative people are also highly observant people. And the second thing they do is that they look at all of these different observations they have and they start to notice patterns. Now, the interesting thing about step one and step two, if you want to improve your skills as an innovator, is that it takes very little effort to get going with this because the ability to observe the world around us and then distill those observations into patterns are things that are genetically wired into us. It's how we survived back on the savanna when there were tigers and lions and who knows, T-Rex and whatever else out. Our ancestors were able to observe all of these different details and distill those into patterns, patterns that told us, is it safe to leave my grass hut this morning? Or do I need to go back in and just pull my grass duvet over my head and call it a day? Or that safety and threat and patterns that tell them where food is or patterns that tell them things about the weather and the climate and things like that. So these are things that are genetically wired into us. The third thing then is, and this is the most critical one that I found in my research that really determines how successful a person is as an innovator, as well as their idea. And that's being able to take the patterns that they've distilled and truly understand how they relate to the work that they do. So if you think about that idea about designing the layout for the McDonald's drive-through with using a Formula One pit stop as their inspiration, the designers observed things. They observed that to start out with, People didn't come into the restaurant because they had to pull up, get out of their car. They'd go inside, they'd wait in line. It was cumbersome. It took a lot of time. And you're thinking if all you want is a cup of coffee on your way to work, that's not very efficient. But then they also observed what happens at a Formula One pit stop. There's a team of people ready and each person has their responsibility. Each person knows how it integrates with the other. And if you look at the pit stop, people are in and out in minutes, right? Because that part of winning the game. So for McDonald's, as they look at their ability to observe and understand part of winning the game comes down to distilling all these details into patterns that are things like efficiency, empowerment in your own job role, understanding how to hire the right people so that they fit into these functions correctly, training them so they understand how all these parts and pieces fit together. Not that they have to necessarily do everyone, but there needs to be context for the responsibility. And so those are things that could easily relate into what their business challenge was and then begin to generate those ideas. And that's something that I think is really important is understanding that 
there is a very structured yet flexible process that we can use to come up with these ideas and then also share them in a pitch because we know that we've heard people share ideas and they're horrible at the presentation. And it's that unfortunate thing that a bad pitch kills even the best of ideas. And so when we look at this whole process, it's the ability to start with inspiration and bring that into the work that we do, generate these ideas that are different and unique, yet still relatable to the specific objective or goal that you have at hand, and then being able to share them to get buy-in from the rest of your team, from your organization, from your clients. That's a critical step right there. Exactly. (laughs) That takes some skill. The last two, you gave us three of the five steps. Right. And so the fourth step is generate. And then the fifth step is pitch. And when we think about traditional brainstorm strategy session, whiteboard session, what typically happens is that we start at step four, generate. We say, all right, everybody come together Friday afternoon at four in the main conference room. That in and of itself doesn't lead to a lot of inspiration for the ideas that come into the room. And so we go into these meetings where we're wanting great ideas, where we want to be inspired But one, we don't know how, and two, we haven't fueled that process. So we're essentially just sucking from a dry bone and we're trying to come up with something that's new and different and unique, but we don't really know what to do. And then you go to pitch those ideas and people say, ah, we don't have that kind of budget. That's not what we do around here. We're not that kind of company. Just do what you did last time and change a few of the numbers kind of thing. And so if we're ever going to get a different output of the ideas that we generate and pitch, then we have to start looking at the input that really fuels that fourth step and how we bring it in a cohesive, reliable, predictable, scalable way that anybody can learn and practice. I was just thinking that anybody can learn this. Like if you have these process, it's so interesting. As soon as you said people start at generate, I'm like, I can think of a dozen people right now, me included, that that's where we start. I got all these ideas and it's not because they were influenced anything. It was just, I was having breakfast and had an idea. Yeah, exactly. And it's always important to capture those because you never know that idea may apply somewhere down the line or it may help lead to another idea. But the thing is, and I call this five-step process, the perpetual innovation process, because really as innovative thinkers, we should never stop. It's something once we go through the observe, distill, relate, generate, and pitch process, there's always going to be another situation when we need another great idea, right? And it doesn't matter if it relates to how we hire and recruit people. It doesn't matter if it relates to how we look at the processes that we use every day on the job. It doesn't matter if it looks, if we look at how we hire and retain people. And I think human resources and talent recruitment and reward. And that area of business is one that needs more ideas than ever before. And many times organizations get stuck in, well, this is how that is done. Well, does it have to be? I mean, if you look at a rideshare company, a Lyft or an Uber, you can apply and within hours, you can be on the job working. What if you could take inspiration from that, relate what works for them into your organization and begin to use that as inspiration for the ideas you generate. Now, I'm not suggesting that every organization needs to have a hiring process where they can get people in the door in a matter of hours. That's not right for every organization. And that's why that relate step is so important because it isn't about copying and pasting something that some other company has done. 
like an Uber and a Lyft. It's understanding by observing the details and finding the patterns and then looking at the patterns and relating that into your own organization. So maybe the pattern in that situation is they have a really great process that helps filter people and understand who's the person that's the right person. Like they have a great process that identifies profiles or or whatever it is. I don't know the hiring process, so I can't say I'm just making this up. What are those things for these kind of organizations? One of the things that we do a lot in our work is we look at the job seeker experience, the candidate experience. And we have in some of my research, as we develop our processes, we look to other industries outside of construction, because I think if there's one industry that's really gotten stagnant in the last decade, it's construction. I mean, the economy has been good. It's been easy to get work and they just kept going, but they've always struggled with hiring. And the candidate wants a fast experience. They want you to make a decision quickly. They don't want you to call them and say, in three weeks, we got an interview. And then in three weeks later, we'll let you know if we make a decision. And so I think it's great to look outside the industry and just even your work. I made a comment to a remodeling contractor one time and I asked him, who's your biggest competition for people? And he goes, oh, there's this big company down there in like four states. And I was like, really? How much are you paying? He's like $19 an hour. I go Amazon, Target, all these customers are like, these are the people you need to look at because they're stealing your work, you know, your people. When you think about the impression you present as a company, especially if you're looking to hire young talent and you have the same approach and brand presence as you've always had, especially as a construction company, you're going to get your shorts eaten. Because I now see companies in traditionally, I'll say it, boring industries that understand how to tap into TikTok and create short clips and whether it's about the work that they do or the personality inside the company or whatever it is, all of this matters if you're looking to be relevant. And while the industry may be very much in demand, back to if you can't hire the talent to get the job done. It doesn't matter how much work you have coming in the door, right? Yeah. If you can't deliver. My brain is just churning right now with ideas and questions. And I'm going to stick to the script because I know that our listeners want to know more too. So what are some things that I can do as a business owner? Think about our listeners that could start using this five-step process. We can start generating these ideas to innovate and ultimately differentiate ourselves so that we stand out as an employer of choice in the industry. I'm going to give you two things. And one is a blatant direction toward the five-step process that I created that we just talked about is to learn this five-step perpetual innovation process. And it's something that I detail in my book, Rethink Innovation. And I explain how to do it in minute detail and also why it matters from a culture and employee recruitment and retention standpoint. So half of it really digs in the process and teaches people how to do it. The other part is, okay, now what do you do with it? If you're looking to create a culture where everyone is encouraged to become an innovative thinker. And then the second thing that I suggest that people do is create what I call a list of envy brands, E-N-V-Y, you know, the brands you're jealous of. This should not be solely companies in your industry. It can be some, because maybe they're doing some amazing things. But what we don't often recognize is that when we're competing, we think we're just competing against our peers in our industry. But truly when 
your customers or your employees or your prospective employees and prospective customers interact with you, they aren't using the filter of how should I think of this kind of company? They're thinking of how was my experience this morning at Starbucks and how does that compare to this experience? How was my experience with Amazon and same day delivery? Sometimes I get things in two hours on my doorstep. How does that compare to the experience you're delivering in whatever way, shape, or form? How do people communicate? I always have my phone right here handy because I have apps and that's what I use to keep track of things, to communicate. Is this something that you need to think about when you look at the brand Envy? Whose apps do you live and die by? And what is it that you could learn from that? Because I think what that helps people do is understand how big and broad they need to start thinking when they look at other brands that can inspire them. That's interesting because I've heard that before that when we're looking, when we're interacting with someone new, we're comparing them to the brands that have the most influence in our lives, whether they're competition or not, the Starbucks, the Apples, the Amazons of the world. And that's who we're comparing this construction company to. Like Amazon can do it in two hours. Why can't you? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I know some construction companies, they do mostly, they don't do big commercial construction, but they'll put up a camera and they send you a daily summary, just like some chat boards that you're on. And it's like, why does that have to be so outside the norm and seem like such a huge thing when that's what we would expect in many other situations with companies that we interact with? And that's what I think is a huge opportunity for the construction industry is to begin to ask yourself, how might we begin to do some of these things, just like what our customers have expectations for in the rest of their lives? So I heard, learn the process, and you have a book that will teach me the whole process. So we'll make sure that's in the show notes so people can get that copy of that book. And then look at your Envy brands, the ones that you envy, just not even competition, maybe, But most likely, who is it that you would actually strive to be like or go like, hey, if I could create a process or a system or be as profitable as them, who is that? Sure. That helps you start to think things like when you're considering ideas and you feel stuck or you want to help move this forward with a team member or a leader or a customer or client, you can start to say, what would Lego do if they were building this? What would Lego do if they were creating an onboarding experience for a construction company? And then it helps you start to think differently. And that's why that list of NV brands is important. I mean, that's really impactful for me because I see a lot of people, that observation step that you start with, when they observe with the blinders on and only look at their industry, they're not seeing what the rest of the world is doing. They're just seeing what their competitors are doing. And so many people get caught in that, well, down the street, they're doing it this way. So we're going to do it this way. I'll never forget, I met a client a few years ago and they didn't offer any paid time off to any of their laborers. I mean, these are the guys in the field. Yeah, you had to be there five years and then you got a week. You had to be there five years and you got a week of paid time off. And these are the physically, I mean, these are guys putting their lives on the line. They didn't get any time off. And I asked him why, and we dug into it. And he goes, well, that's the way my dad's company was. Why? Well, that's the way his dad's company. Well, why? Well, that's the way the industry has always done it. Well, why? Like they didn't have any answer for it. And I said, you're competing for the same people that Amazon's competing for. And you get two weeks PTO day one. Like how do you, you got to look outside of your industry? I think that to me, that observation step is, I mean, I feel like that's where so many people need to start is looking at those Envy brands. I just, I love that tip. It really is almost so simple. 
people easily dismiss it as not being relevant, but the power of it is in the simplicity of it. When you stop and slow down and pause and really observe, people have eaten a lot of humble pie once they go through and start to observe. Yeah. So we observe, we learn the process, we look at these Envy brands, but then what? I mean, I just think that there's so many different directions you could go, but I'm sure it's not that complicated. Yeah. Next, what I say is that I've created a specific formula for an objective statement, because even if you follow this process, at the end of the day, the ideas have to apply to a real world situation. And the objective statement has three parts. The first part is we need new ideas too. What is it that you're looking to accomplish? And I think this question is something that's very common for most companies, especially construction companies. They have a situation in front of them that they know what they want to solve, that they need to solve. But the next part is, so we can. What is it that you're ultimately wanting to accomplish? Is it so you can stay on schedule? Is it so you can stay on budget? Is what is the so we can? And this can oftentimes be deceivingly difficult because not everybody agrees on what that outcome is. And that right there makes a big difference in the clarity and sophistication of the ideas that you come up with is that everybody has to agree what is it we're ultimately trying to accomplish here. And unless you can do that, to be honest, it doesn't matter how great the ideas are because they have to apply toward a specific business objective. And so that one takes time and conversations to agree on. And then the next part is with these constraints. And I usually say, look for two to four. And the two most common ones are time and budget, but it could be within code requirements. It could be a whole lot of things, but what are the requirements that the idea ultimately has to fit into? Because even if you got agreement on the first and second part of the statement, we need new ideas so we can the ideas still have to live in the reality of the world that we work in. And that's where the constraints come in. And so when I have people go through this process, I have them set up the objective statement and then really set it aside until we've gone through the idea generation part. And then we start to pull in, okay, does it fit these first two parts of the objective statement? Okay, now how do we start to Combine some, get rid of some, revamp some, and still we're looking at the world of possibility. And we don't bring those constraints in until the very last moment. Because just like you said, Ryan, the typical thing is you get into a brainstorm meeting, you start at step four to generate ideas, you throw out all these ideas and people say that'll never work because they start with the constraints in their mind instead of the world of possibilities. Yeah, I was just thinking, unless you're Elon Musk. Because there are no constraints for that man. We're going to live on Mars and it's all crazy. Let's go. Exactly. It's so refreshing to me to hear that there is a process for being able to generate really innovative ideas, things that aren't just going to iterate a process or change something. I mean, you could transform an industry with this and to know that it's something you can learn And it's something that you don't have to be an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs or an Ivy to be able to do this. This is something that your team can do without those names that I just mentioned. Absolutely. And it works in every corner of the business. In the book, I talk about a woman who was in finance and she wasn't an executive. She wasn't, I think she wasn't even a director or anything, but she had 
a report that she had to run manually every month and it was 40 hours a month to run it. So you think about that's 25% of your time every month. It's a week a month. So that's what she started to observe what was going on with this process. Then she started to observe other departments, other situations where she saw efficiencies and how they solved it. And she taught herself a programming language, wrote herself a program. And now instead of 40 hours every month, it's about 12 minutes which is incredibly powerful from a number of levels. One, she's not doing soul-sucking work for 25% of her time every single month. Two, she feels empowered to be able to observe more about what's going on and take that inspiration to generate ideas that have a specific bottom line impact. This is where we get back to that new, is it a new idea? No, but it was new to her team and what she did in the work. Was it a great idea? You better believe it. And was it a reliable one? Absolutely. If you think about being able to free up 39 hours and 48 minutes of one person's time every single month across the entire organization, what an incredible bottom line impact that has. Oh, I love that story because not every idea has to be completely revolutionary for the business. But to her, that was a revolutionary idea. And the other thing I heard from it, she now has a new skill set. Absolutely. And it fit the criteria of the objective statement. It worked beautifully. So we do have this perception that innovative ideas are big, disruptive, back to our friend Elon Musk. But that's not the truth. The really innovative organizations understand that it's a consistent focus on looking at how we can do things better in every corner of the business. I think reading your book is probably a great first step. For me well, I, I think so, book. but I, I will admit I'm quite biased. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I'd imagine that there's plenty of stories in there. And I love the story of the gal in finance because it wasn't some revolutionary transformative. We're going to dominate the market and take out our competition. But in her world, I mean, that was just so impactful. And even if it wasn't 39 hours on every employee, but if an employee could save five hours a month, by having these innovative ideas, I mean, what would that do to your organization in a year? Absolutely. And we don't think about the culmination of all these tiny little baby steps forward. We look at things and think it has to be big and massive, but really it's all of these collective everyday innovations that have that big, massive impact. It was interesting when I was doing research on the book, I found a statistic that said, 90% of all innovation happens outside of traditional product and service line development. And the other thing was that 70% of all innovative ideas come from employees inside the organization, as opposed to the executives, the leadership. And unless we really equip every employee with something that is tangible, that they can understand, that they can learn, that they can practice you'll never really reach your full potential as an organization. And I think that's one of the things that gets me the most excited about uncovering and say discovering this process that these innovators use is that it is something anybody can do. I think you've made that very clear on the show today. Thank you for that. I think that, yeah, I do think that one of the things we see as a challenge for some people though is letting people be innovative. Like as a leader, you have to understand that Just because someone wants to change your process doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's really a hallmark of a true leader is understanding you don't have all the answers. 
And if you don't have people on your team coming to you with ideas, it's probably because they've learned that's not allowed. And then you need that culture shift and that change there. Oh, it's fantastic stuff. Like I said, we'll have a link to your book in the show notes, but for those people listening right now that want to learn more, get to know more about you, I know you do speaking and training and consulting work. How do they find you? And then you also have a giveaway for our listeners. I do. People can find me at my website. It's Carla with a C, Carla Johnson. Dot co. There's no M. I say it's dot co for the great state of Colorado. You can find me because I'm in Denver, Colorado. And when you go there, there's all sorts of blogs and resources to help you with different areas of this. But also on the homepage, you'll find a free assessment that you can take and find out your own style as an innovator. And I think that's also something that's really important as we look at the people part of innovation is that We all say innovation and transformation and all of these things are a mix of people, processes, and technology. We have more processes than we ever want to see or deal with. We've been processed to death. We have technology, so much technology that three-fourths of it probably never, ever really gets used or at least used to its full potential. But the part that has been grossly neglected is the people part. And that's why I wanted to look into the different styles of how people innovate. And I think in an industry like construction, where at the top you have a lot of left brain people, they're thinking about nicely and importantly, the very minute details of how things are done and very left brain thinkers, not everybody's like that. And if you only look for people like you to help be innovators in your organization, then you're missing an incredible opportunity. So this assessment shows what kind of style you have as an innovator. There's six different styles. And then also when you find out your own style, there's information that helps you understand how your archetype interacts with the other five, how it looks when you're all in sync and how it looks like when maybe you're butting some heads. So it's educational and helps people understand how to be more effective with their own style and not feel like they have to be somebody else to be effective. And anyone that knows me, they know I geek out about assessments. I love them. We use them in a lot of the work we do. People ask me all the time, like, how many have you taken? I go, I lost count. So just so everybody knows, I will be taking this assessment before the end of the day to learn a little bit more about myself. Carla, thank you so much. This is really insightful. I imagine that for some of our listeners, it'd be really impactful to know that they can start making these changes. They can empower their team to be able to make these changes and start innovating inside their company. And it's not just something that is left to a select few. So thank you so much for that. It was wonderful to be here. Thanks, Ryan. This is one of my favorite audiences to talk to because I grew up in the AEC industry and I use a lot of what I learned there in my work today. Oh, it definitely shows. Thank you so much again. Thank you for being a guest. And I look forward to speaking soon. Thanks, Ryan. The Blue Collar Culture Podcast is sponsored by BlueCollarCulture.com. We help entrepreneurs create a healthy culture and build a self-managing business. To learn more, go to BlueCollarCulture.com.